Well, may we say, God save the Queen. Because nothing will save the Governor-General. The proclamation which you have just heard read by the Governor-General's official secretary was countersigned Malcolm Fraser. Who will undoubtedly go down in Australian history from Remembrance Day 1975 as Kerr's Kerr. Canberra, Australia, 1975. Until today, Gough Whitlam, the leader of the Labour Party, had been the Prime Minister of Australia. Whitlam's government ushered in a wave of progressive reforms for the country. But as conservative opposition in the Senate stalled the government's budgets and a series of scandals followed the Labour Party in the press, Whitlam's government reached a state of crisis. The crisis was broken by John Kerr the Governor-General of Australia, and the official representative of Queen Elizabeth II. On November 11, 1975, Kerr fired Gough Whitlam from his post as the elected Prime Minister and replaced him with the Liberal Party leader, Malcolm Fraser. This incident, known today as the Dismissal, would go down as one of the most dramatic moments in Australian political history. People still argue, to this day, over what constitutional rights that Governor-General John Kerr actually had to remove a Prime Minister from office. But as we'll hear, John Kerr did not act alone. The dismissal of Gough Whitlam was a bloodless coup and it was likely carried out with the assistance and encouragement of opposition parties, Australian and American intelligence agencies, and the British royal family. This is a conspiracy you can believe in. Welcome to Conspiracy You Can Believe In, a show about conspiracies and plots that may have actually happened. Now this episode is about democracy. It's about democracy in a specific place, Australia in a specific time, the 1970s. But ultimately, this is about the principle of allowing a governing majority to, well, govern on behalf of everyday people. In this story, an entrenched reactionary minority will use its outsized power in the Senate to bring a left-leaning government near a state of total collapse 
only to have the whole rug pulled out by an unelected official. Now, unless you are Australian, this episode is going to require a lot of context, which I'll do my best to provide. But if you're an American like me, I think you still might find a little familiar territory here. For sources on this episode, I'm using the book The Palace Letters by Jenny Hawking. Hawking is a political historian in Australia who sued her own government's national archives to access the letters between Governor General John Kerr and Buckingham Palace. These letters were under a personal embargo from Queen Elizabeth herself, and Hawking spent years in court to uncover them. Thanks to her, we now have a better understanding of the events that led up to Gough Whitlam's dismissal. I'm also using several articles from Jacobin Magazine, some articles from the Australian journalist Guy Rundle, and Australian news programs from around the time of the dismissal. I'll link all the sources in the episode description. Before I get into any theories about the dismissal, I'll have to start with a little background. Or a lot of background. Like I said, unless you're from Australia, it's likely you're not overly familiar with Gough Whitlam's time in office or what led to his removal. If you are already aware of all this stuff, I apologize. But we'll have to take a minute to look at what the politics of Australia were like in the mid to the late 20th century. For starters, the Labour Party, that's Australia's main center-left party, had been out of power for a whole generation by the time Gough Whitlam got elected in 1972. Since 1949, the government had been in the hands of the Liberal Party. That's 23 years out of power for Labour. As an aside here, the Liberal Party in Australia refers to classical liberalism, that is, pro-business, anti-union, that kind of politics. They are on the center-right. This is not what Americans call liberal. The Labor Party endured a bitter split in 1955 over the politics of anti-communism, with some of the traditional Catholic working-class base of the Labor Party forming the conservative Democratic Labor Party that broke away from the main branch. Now, it was this split that helped keep labor in the wilderness for so many years. But by 1972, people were starting to get fed up with the liberals and their conservative coalition partners, the Country Party. A new political movement that involved young people and women, allied with labor's base of unionized workers, helped propel a labor government into office in the general election of 1972. This would make Gough Whitlam prime minister. The Labor Party had been out of power for over 20 years. Gough knew that they had a lot of catching up to do. Gough Whitlam was not really known as a radical left-winger. He was a committed member of the regular Labor Party, and in fact he helped the moderate faction of that party defeat the left in his own home state of Victoria. But when he came into office as prime minister, he knew that his government had to make up for lost ground. And he acted swiftly. Gough Whitlam's government, for all of its faults, may deserve to go down as the most forward-thinking leadership that Australia ever had. 
Although Whitlam was in office for only three years, his government introduced a wave of reforms in an attempt to turn Australia into a modern social democracy. Under Whitlam, the Labour Party passed laws protecting equal pay for women in the workforce. They pulled the last Australian troops out of Vietnam. They decriminalized homosexuality, and they granted independence to Papua New Guinea. They also began granting land rights to indigenous Australians, and they established Medibank, the country's first national public health insurance. There were many more changes like this, including unprecedented levels of spending on social programs like education, public transit, and public housing. All of this infuriated the coalition of conservative parties in the opposition, who still had a majority in the Senate. Now, I'll need to explain a little bit about the Australian government. Yes, they have a prime minister like many other Commonwealth countries. But unlike other Commonwealth countries, Australia also has a Senate, like in the United States. And this isn't some ceremonial copy of the House of Lords. The Australian Senate holds actual political power. Each state in Australia elects 12 senators, irrespective of the actual population. Led by the Liberal Party, the Conservatives in the Senate began to vote down or table budget bills in 1974. This is a tactic known as blocking supply. Constitutionally, either house of the Australian legislature can do it, but it's a risky move, especially for the Senate, because if you block supply long enough, eventually the country can't pay its bills, and it creates a government shutdown. The Senate blocking supply especially angered Gough Whitlam, who believed that real power should rest with the House of Representatives, since those seats are apportioned based on population, and the makeup of the House determined who the Prime Minister was. Constitutionally, the Senate probably did have the power to block supply, but conventionally, it was just not done. If you're in America, and you remember the constant bickering over raising the debt ceiling from several years ago, some of this may sound familiar. It's more or less the same thing. However, in Australia, if the Senate holds up the budget long enough, the Prime Minister has the right to dissolve both houses of Parliament and call for a clean slate general election. This process is known in Australia as a double dissolution. Gough Whitlam did just that in May of 1974, using it as sort of a referendum on his government's reforms. Not only did Labor retain their majority in the House, but the Conservative coalition lost their majority in the Senate. The Senate was now evenly split, hinging on the whims of one or two moderate independent senators. It was at this time that Gough Whitlam made another political decision one that didn't seem to matter much at the time, but it would have grave consequences for his time in office. After the previous governor-general's term expired, Whitlam appointed John Kerr in that office. If you're American, you may be a little confused as to what a governor-general is. On paper, the governor-general is put into office by the Queen as her official representative, but in reality, the Queen is bound to install whoever the Prime Minister recommends. This makes the Governor-General acting head of state of Australia. But the role is mostly ceremonial. 
under John Kerr, this would change. Gough Whitlam likely picked him for governor general because Kerr had an extensive legal background and a history of being a man on the left. But this was only history. John Kerr began his political life as a working-class communist, but he moved very quickly into anti-communism in the 1950s. After the Labor Party split in 1955, he became associated with the liberals. His letters as governor general would reveal an almost paranoid fear of Gough Whitlam's government, which he felt was dangerously radical. And although the Whitlam government was buoyed by the re-election of 1974, things quickly began to go south. The early mid-1970s were not an easy time to hold power in Australia, or for that matter, almost anywhere. The 1973 OPEC embargo affected oil prices and fuel supplies worldwide. And the economy in many countries staggered into a double whammy of recession and inflation. Faced with rising costs, high unemployment, and bad economic prospects, Goff cut back on spending and many of his signature social programs. The mood in the country became sour. A far cry from those days of 1972 when labor stormed into office on a landslide with the slogan, It's Time. But Goff's cabinet still had big plans for the future, Stagflation be damned. In late 1974, the Minister of Minerals and Energy, Rex Connor, devised a scheme to fund a massive energy infrastructure project through unconventional means. Rather than seeking business partnerships with European and U.S. banks to electrify the country's railways and build a natural gas pipeline, Connor sent out feelers for billions in loans from Arab nations at a lower interest rate. Connor believed that this would allow the Australian public to own a larger share of their own infrastructure, rather than having to sell it off to American investors. It also helped that many Arab nations at the time had plenty of petrodollars available. To facilitate these loans, Rex Connor brought on a Pakistani financier named Tirath Kemlani. Over several months, Kemlani would send telex messages, stringing Connor along, promising huge loans if only he had a little more time. But these loans would always fail to materialize, with some flimsy excuse from Kemlani. I should mention here that none of what's happening yet is necessarily illegal. It's just probably a bad idea. Nobody in the Whitlam cabinet was embezzling money, and all accounts that I've seen seem to show that Connor was acting out of national interest. He really wanted this infrastructure to be publicly owned. He just found a very risky way to go about it. The risky budgeting scheme became fodder for the Liberal and Country Party in the Senate, who would grill Goff and his ministers over what the press was now referring to as the loans affair. And even worse, in March 1975, the Liberals got fresh wind in their sails by electing a new tenacious party leader named Malcolm Fraser. When Fraser was selected as party leader, he made a public statement that confirmed he would allow Goff to fill out the customary three years of his term in office, 
Generally, governments in Australia run about three years before facing election. But Fraser also claimed that he would only allow a full term on his conditions, saying, quote, If we do make up our minds at some stage that the government is so reprehensible that an opposition must use whatever power is available to it, then I'd want to find a situation in which Mr. Whitlam woke up one morning finding the decision had been made and finding that he had been caught with his pants well and truly down. The Liberal Party would soon get their chance to paint the government as reprehensible. In July 1975, it became clear that Deputy Prime Minister Jim Cairns either deliberately or inadvertently misled Parliament about some details concerning the loans affair. Whitlam would fire him for it. In October 1975, Mineral Secretary Rex Connor also faced controversy over the loans when the Senate learned he maintained contact with financier Tirath Kemlani even after the Prime Minister revoked his powers to source loans. This information probably came to the opposition through a leak in Whitlam's government, and it was confirmed by Kemlani himself who released telex records of his conversations with Rex Connor. Goff fired Connor, too. This would be Malcolm Fraser's chance to strike. Although the Senate was split, the conservative coalition had just enough votes to block supply all over again, citing the loans affair as justification. If they blocked supply multiple times for long enough, they would threaten a government shutdown and force a new election. The question would be, what kind of election? Malcolm Fraser and the Liberal Party wanted a double dissolution, a full re-election of both houses of Parliament. Fraser argued that the government had become so tarnished with scandal, voters should have the opportunity to replace the whole thing, and a Liberal victory in the House of Representatives would put Fraser into executive office. But Gough, Whitlam, and Labor disagreed. The people just had a general election. Remember, the last double dissolution election was in 1974. It just happened. The government hadn't been in office anywhere near its customary three years. Besides, the next election that was constitutionally due was a half-Senate election. This is sort of like a midterm in Australia since it doesn't determine who the prime minister is, but it would determine the makeup of the Senate, or half the seats of it. Whitlam preferred the half-Senate option, because he wouldn't risk getting thrown out of office, and he might also have a chance to break the deadlock in the Senate. Goff and Fraser were at an impasse. This is where Governor General John Kerr steps in. Although he's supposed to be a figurehead, Kerr sees himself as a steward of the Australian constitutional system, so he takes an active role in mediating the dispute between the Prime Minister and the opposition. The government is due to shut down by some point in December if the opposition continues to block supply. However, several moderate liberal senators have publicly stated they don't like the supply-blocking strategy and they may soon vote to pass a budget if it comes to it. As the government and opposition argue over a half-Senate election or a double dissolution, 
Kerr goes behind the prime minister's back for advice. Normally, a governor general is supposed to seek advice from their own attorney general or the prime minister. Constitutionally, the governor general is appointed by the queen, but serves only on the advice and consent of the prime minister, the elected head of government. Kerr ignores this convention, and he seeks legal advice from two sitting justices on the high court. This is problematic because these are people who could be ruling on a case involving Kerr's actions. Thanks to Professor Jenny Hawking, we know that Kerr was also seeking legal advice from the Queen. His letters to and from Buckingham Palace prove this. All of these sources assured John Kerr that he had the ability to use a controversial emergency legal solution known as the reserve power. The reserve power, in a nutshell, is the ability of the Governor General, the unelected representative of the British monarch, to fire the Prime Minister. We know from his own letters that John Kerr had been considering using this power at least since August of 1975. This was months before the supply crisis that precipitated the dismissal itself. John Kerr's letters show that he spoke to Prince Charles about the subject during a royal visit to Papua New Guinea that year. He also had a backroom deal with Malcolm Fraser to install him as the interim prime minister in the event that he removed Gough Whitlam from office. And on November 11, 1975, that's exactly what he did. November 11th is Remembrance Day in most of the Commonwealth countries. Governor General Kerr had duties at a ceremony for the war dead that morning, and both Gough Whitlam and Malcolm Fraser were meanwhile sparring in the House of Representatives with dueling motions to censure one another. By this point, Whitlam is due to meet with Kerr that afternoon to deliver a notice to call a half-Senate election. But others notice that Malcolm Fraser seems to have quietly slipped out of Parliament. Where has he gone? At 1 p.m., Gough Whitlam made his way to Government House, where the Governor-General lives, to deliver his letter on the half-Senate election. But as soon as he arrives in front of John Kerr's desk, before the Prime Minister can even say anything, Kerr fires him. Gough Whitlam is shocked, but Kerr tells him, quote, the Chief Justice approves of this course of action. Whitlam responds, So that's why you had lunch with him yesterday. I advised you not to consult him. Kerr says, We will all have to live with this. Before leaving, Whitlam shoots back, You certainly will. Then, out of muscle memory, he shakes the Governor General's hand and leaves. Just after Goff had gone, Malcolm Fraser appeared from an antechamber where the Governor General had him waiting. He is immediately sworn in as a caretaker prime minister until a general election set for the following month. As news of the dismissal breaks, tensions in the capital city begin to rise. In the House of Representatives, where the Labor Party still has a clear majority, Goff brings forward a vote of no confidence in the new caretaker PM, Malcolm Fraser, and it passes. Under normal circumstances, this would mean that Malcolm Fraser is no longer the prime minister. But in order for it to take effect, the motion has to be delivered to the governor general 
by the Speaker of the House. John Kerr refuses to meet with the Speaker for hours. During this time, Malcolm Fraser allows the supply bills to pass the Senate and then dissolves both houses of Parliament for a general election. This effectively nullified the motion of no confidence, which John Kerr refused to recognize anyway. The Speaker decided to read the motion instead on the steps of Parliament, and Gough Whitlam was there too, among a growing, furious crowd. As the Speaker concluded reading the motion of no confidence in the Fraser government with the customary God save the Queen, Whitlam boomed, quote, Well may we say God save the Queen, because nothing will save the Governor General. He implored the crowd to, quote, Maintain your rage and enthusiasm for the campaign for the election. This election was to be held in just a few weeks. It would be make or break for the labor government and all of the social democratic reforms that they implemented. Unfortunately for Gough Whitlam and labor, the election in December of 1975 was a rout. Labor focused on the details of the dismissal, hoping that the unconstitutional acts of the governor-general would rally the public. But this was still the mid-1970s. Stagflation, the oil crisis, and high unemployment were still at the front of everyone's minds. And that's what the Liberal Country Party Coalition ran on. They would win the largest majority in Australian history, making Malcolm Fraser the Prime Minister for real. So now you know the basic story of what happened. Let's change course and get into the weird stuff. Many supporters of Gough Whitlam have claimed for years that the dismissal was not the sole decision of one man, Governor General John Kerr, but a plot among conservative forces in Australia. Opponents of Gough Whitlam have dismissed this idea as a baseless conspiracy theory. But over the years, up to the present day, more and more evidence has come forward that proves there were more people in on this than just John Kerr. Let's start with the intelligence community. There are a couple things I glossed over during the explanation of Whitlam's government. I mostly focused on his domestic policy, but his foreign policy is what's important here. As I said earlier, when Gough Whitlam took office, he wasn't really known as a left-wing firebrand in the Labor Party. But the conditions of the time took his policies to unexpected places. You see, Australia had an unusually close alliance with the U.S. during the Cold War, especially for a country so far away. Australia was one of the few U.S. allies to send combat troops to Vietnam. Gough Whitlam was brought into power in part due to the huge anti-war protests that erupted in response to Australia's involvement. He then removed all troops from the country by the end of 1972, and then he recognized the North Vietnamese government. Gough's increasingly neutral stances on Cold War issues began to cause friction with his own intelligence apparatus. Australia's security agency is called the Australian Security Intelligence Organization, or ASIO. In 1973, Australia was to host a visit from a high-ranking official from communist Yugoslavia. 
Now, Australia has a large Croatian population, and within this community, there were a small number of far-right Croatian nationalists, some of whom formed terror cells. These groups were responsible for at least one bombing in Australia in the early 70s, and their presence was angering the Yugoslavian government. Gough Whitlam's attorney general, Lionel Murphy, believed, probably correctly, that ASIO was hiding something on these Croatian nationalist terror groups, and that they were refusing to move the ball on investigations. So Murphy sent government agents to go to ASIO headquarters in the middle of the night and look for evidence that ASIO was protecting them. They didn't find a smoking gun, and the so-called Murphy raids would damage the government's relationship with the intelligence agencies of Australia. But that wasn't the only incident that would anger them. Gough Whitlam also ordered Australia's foreign intelligence agency to cease cooperation with the CIA when he learned of their efforts to overthrow the democratic socialist government of Salvador Allende in Chile. By 1974, Gough began to focus on a much more controversial target in the intelligence community. This was a joint Australian-CIA listening station called Pine Gap. The CIA basically ran Pine Gap, which was key to surveillance operations in Southeast Asia. But Australia owned the land that it was on, and the government had the right not to renew the lease. As Gough's tensions with his own intelligence agencies heated up, Pine Gap would become a major issue. Another major issue that Whitlam would pursue was the opposition party's relationship to U.S. intelligence. Shortly before the dismissal, Whitlam sought to turn the tables on the Liberal Country Party coalition that scandalized his government with the loans affair. In October 1975, Whitlam's staff uncovered information that an American private contractor named Richard Stallings was an active CIA agent. Stallings lived in Australia, and at one time he rented a house from his close buddy Doug Anthony. Anthony happened to be the head of the opposition country party. Normally, when the U.S. stations a CIA agent in an ally's country, the Prime Minister is supposed to have a list of these active agents. Richard Stallings' name was not on this list. This would make him an unauthorized intelligence operative. In other words, a spy. Whitlam's government soon discovered hints that the CIA actually did provide a list with Stallings and other operatives' names on it. They just didn't give it to Whitlam's government. They gave it to his Defense Department. That meant that the Defense Department and possibly the country party in the opposition were harboring foreign spies in Australia behind the government's back. Whitlam claimed to have this second secret list of U.S. intelligence operatives, and he threatened to reveal them in an upcoming session of Parliament on November 11, 1975. Now, you may remember that November 11, 1975, was also the day John Kerr fired Gough Whitlam as Prime Minister, and I don't think that's a coincidence. In the week before the dismissal, Governor General Kerr had been facing some pressure from the intelligence community to put a stop to whatever it was that Gough Whitlam was doing. 
On November 8th, the director of ASIO received a telex from Ted Shackley. He was the East Asia division chief for the CIA. The cable was a frantic demand for an explanation as to what Gough Whitlam was doing. At times, the message seemed to threaten the end of the special intelligence relationship between the U.S. and Australia. Here's an excerpt from the CIA cable. Quote, Does this signify some change in our bilateral intelligence security-related fields? CIA cannot see how this dialogue with continued reference to CIA can do other than blow the lid off those installations in Australia where the persons concerned have been working, and which are vital to both of our services and countries, particularly the installation at Alice Springs. The installation at Alice Springs refers to Pine Gap. The cable closed with a stern warning that, quote, the CIA feels grave concern as to where this type of public discussion may lead. Just a couple days before he fired Gough Whitlam, John Kerr was shown this cable from the CIA. The implications were clear. If you let Gough rat out the names of American spies in Parliament, you can kiss our intelligence cooperation goodbye. And we know how John Kerr reacted to that. What we don't know is what exactly was John Kerr's relationship to the CIA. One hint comes from a former U.S. intelligence employee, a man named Christopher Boyce. Boyce worked in a high-security clearance comms center, and he claimed to have come across secret CIA cables that he wasn't supposed to see. Many of them, he claimed, had to do with planned interference in Australian politics over Gough Whitlam's possible closure of Pine Gap. One CIA cable, Boyce would later recall, referred to Governor General John Kerr as, quote, Our Man Kerr. Boyce would eventually wind up in prison. He sold information to the Soviet Union in return for cash. And these events were dramatized in the 1984 movie The Falcon and the Snowman. Now, all of this is just the testimony of one guy. We can't know for sure what Boyce saw on those cables or if those cables even exist. But there is some other corroborating evidence that shows John Kerr did in fact have some connection to the CIA. Now, remember when I mentioned at the beginning that the Australian Labor Party endured a split in the 1950s over the perceived influence of communists? Well, this cemented John Kerr's move to the right. It was a journey that he had been on for some time. During this period, John Kerr took leading roles in a few organizations now understood to be front groups for the CIA. He was a prominent member in a group called the Australian Association for Cultural Freedom, as well as another one called Law Asia. Both of these were funded by the CIA. None of this proves that Kerr was an active CIA asset at the time of the dismissal, but I think it's fair to assume that people at Langley probably knew about his past. One other piece of circumstantial evidence on the CIA's involvement. Remember Tirath Kemlani, the Pakistani financier who strung the Labor government along during the loans affair? 
Well, he also worked for a firm called Commerce International, which probably moved cash for the CIA. Ultimately, I don't think we can say the CIA directly caused the downfall of the Whitlam government, but it was one catalyst that probably helped to spur it on, especially once Goff started threatening to expose active CIA operatives or to close down Pine Gap. But most of the pressure that we know of seems to be indirect. Telexes, strongly hinting to Australian intelligence that things could change if they allow this type of public discussion to proceed. Australian intelligence already hated Gough Whitlam. In my opinion, the CIA cable was just kicking them in the direction that they were already going. And finally, let's go to one more source of various unanswered questions surrounding the dismissal. The royal family. This one has been a touchy subject in Australia for some time, since it involves political debates over monarchism. I'll just say flat out, I'm an American, I don't get monarchy. I just, I don't understand it. It's none of my business if Australians want to have a king or a queen as their head of state, but it must be pointed out, the royals did interfere in the Whitlam government. And we know this now, thanks mainly to an Australian historian of the Whitlam government, Professor Jenny Hawking. Hawking sued her own government's archives to release the correspondence between Governor General John Kerr and Buckingham Palace. The National Archives of Australia refused to show them, claiming that they were the personal property of the Kerr estate. What's more, the correspondence was under an embargo from Queen Elizabeth herself. Dr. Hawking was able to appeal the case all the way to the High Court of Australia, which in 2020 ruled in her favor. The letters shared between John Kerr and the royal family are now available for free online. Hawking puts this correspondence into context in her 2020 book, The Palace Letters. And what the letters show contradicts generations of political convention in the Commonwealth mainly that the British monarch and her governor-general that represents the crown is only a figurehead. Real power, conventionally and constitutionally, is supposed to reside in the elected prime minister. This is supposed to be true for Canada, true for New Zealand, and it's supposed to be true for Australia. But these letters prove that John Kerr saw things differently. He believed that he had an active role to play in Australian politics. And to a certain extent, Buckingham Palace seemed to agree. Now for context here, John Kerr did not write to the Queen directly. That isn't done. He exchanged letters with a man named Martin Charteris. He's the private secretary to the Queen at the time. This doesn't mean that John Kerr heard someone else's opinion in the responses that he got. Legally speaking, Charteris spoke for the Queen. He wasn't writing these letters as a private citizen. He was writing for the Queen in her voice. There were a little over 200 of these letters, mostly from Kerr to Charteris, and they begin in August of 1974, just after Whitlam appointed Kerr as Governor General. Many of the letters from Kerr to Charteris are complaints about Whitlam's politics or the Labor Party. 
The Queen's secretary avoids delving too deep into Australian politics in the much shorter responses. But if you read between the lines, there are little hints of advice there. Charteris and the Queen both knew that the monarch had to stay aloof from politics. The letters from Buckingham Palace make constant reminders to Kerr that the Queen cannot constitutionally intervene. But as Jenny Hawking points out, the context is important here. John Kerr frequently asked Charteris, and by extension, the Queen, for legal advice on what to do about Gough Whitlam and the impasse in the Senate. And Charteris gives him that legal advice. None of this is supposed to happen. If Kerr wants legal advice, he's supposed to go to his own country's attorney general or to his own country's elected prime minister. Not justices on the highest court in the country, not to Malcolm Fraser, and certainly not to the Queen. Neither Martin Charteris, John Kerr, or the Queen of England ran for or won an election in Australia, and yet throughout the palace letters there are little hints and insinuations to John Kerr that could have monumental effects on the country's government. Take this letter from November 4, 1975. Martin Charteris is responding to a letter from John Kerr, who is despairing about the deadlock in the Senate, and he raises the possibility of using the reserve powers to resolve it. This is how Charteris, speaking for the Queen, talks about the reserve powers of the Governor-General to fire a Prime Minister. Quote, It is often argued that such powers no longer exist. I do not believe this to be true. I think those powers do exist. But to use them is a heavy responsibility, and it is only at the very end, when there is demonstrably no other course that they should be used. This is a big deal, because it was legally questionable that John Kerr had the right to dismiss a government. He's a representative of the Crown. But as the crisis mounted, Kerr got more encouragement from Buckingham Palace to act. Here's a letter from the following day, November 5, 1975. Charteris advises Kerr regarding his role in a constitutional crisis, saying, quote, If you do as you will, what the Constitution dictates, you cannot possibly do the monarchy any avoidable harm. The chances are you will do it good. Charteris then quotes a passage from Canadian Prime Minister Arthur Mahon, which extols the limited but very real power of a governor-general. Now, the context is important here because Arthur Mahon was made Prime Minister of Canada only when that country's governor-general, Lord Bing, essentially fired the previous Prime Minister, Mackenzie King. This was known as the King-Bing Affair, and it would certainly have been a well-known piece of history for both Charteris and John Kerr. It's notable here that the Queen's secretary uses a quote from Arthur Mahon, a conservative who was put in power by a governor-general. Explicitly, it may be left unsaid in Charteris's letter to Kerr, but the implication is clear. You do have the power to remove a prime minister. 
John Kerr fired Gough Whitlam on the 11th of November without telling Buckingham Palace first. Now that would have put the Queen in an awkward position. In a constitutional monarchy, she has to pretend not to be involved. But in the weeks and months after the dismissal, the communication between John Kerr and the Queen's secretary make it clear that the royal family approved of his actions. Kerr and his wife both received honors from the Queen herself. Martin Charteris told Kerr that, quote, no other course was open to you, and that he found no one who has been able to tell me what you ought to have done instead. Now, after a series of public drunken embarrassments at official ceremonies, John Kerr would eventually be pressured by Buckingham Palace to resign as Governor General in 1977. He lived the rest of his life in a self-imposed exile in London, ingratiating himself into the high society of conservative politicians and the English gentry until he would die in 1991. As for the Australian government itself, Malcolm Fraser would serve as Prime Minister for the next seven years. He came into office as the leader of the Liberal Party's far-right wing, but he moderated a little bit in office. He even signed one of Gough Whitlam's signature bills into law. That was the Land Bill for Indigenous Australians. That signed back some of the first property rights to Australia's First Nations. But Fraser also reversed many of the Whitlam government's investments in public programs, things like housing, transit, and health care. The Fraser government famously turned Medibank into a private for-profit insurance system. Perhaps most importantly for the people who helped put him there, Malcolm Fraser was a much more reliable ally to the intelligence services of Australia and the United States. He had no intention of meaningfully carrying on Gough Whitlam's momentum toward an independent foreign policy. Years after his departure, Fraser would actually reverse this line of thinking, but it's not important what a leader says after they've left office. Gough Whitlam saw his party come crashing into the halls of power in 1972, after two decades of being kept out. He was a reliable Labor Party bureaucrat, not part of the insurgent grassroots left. And yet, he knew that his party had to make up for all those years they were in the minority. He had to repair the broken health care system, to offer women protections in the workplace, and to turn Australia into something resembling a modern social democracy. Some of that legacy lives on. Medibank would be revived as Medicare under a future Labor government giving Australia an imperfect but working public insurance system. As conflicts and Cold War tensions rose, Gough Whitlam became more committed to a non-aligned foreign policy, pitting himself against the Australian defense establishment that marched in lockstep with the United States. This was probably a key factor in Gough Whitlam's removal from power, but I don't think it was the only one Australia's conservative coalition was restless in the minority, and they tried every opportunity to rile up scandal and stop the government in its tracks. I believe that it's apparent from his letters that John Kerr shared some of these goals, and so did the Australian intelligence apparatus, who didn't want to upset their close alliance with the U.S. And so, too, 
did the CIA. The Queen, her advisors, and the unelected magistrates in Australia's High Court also had a hand in the affair, giving John Kerr possibly unlawful advice before he took the unconventional step to remove a democratically elected prime minister. It's true that Goff would badly lose the double dissolution election that followed. The public appeared to grow tired of hearing about endless scandals or the Senate threatening to shut down the government, and they voted for a change of leadership in the face of a fresh, upbeat Liberal Party ad campaign. But in my opinion, the dismissal was a blow to democracy. Eventually, Malcolm Fraser would lose power himself, and he'd be replaced with a Labor government under Bob Hawke in 1983. But by this point, Labor seemed to have lost its edge. It felt it had to reassure the public and the press that those heady days of 1972 weren't coming back. They learned how to make a deal with business interests. After all, they learned what happens when they get too ambitious. This has been Conspiracy You Can Believe In, and thanks for listening. I hope you'll return in a few weeks for my next episode. Thanks again. I remember the day I was no more than a boy Working in an oxide plant at the back of North Fitzroy Bert Gilchrist told the gaffer Cause Bert Gilchrist had the clout He said they'd given got the bullet and the lads are walking out And we walked right up that job While the gaffer held the door And watched it on the telly In a TV rental store It was one hell of a situation The kind you just can't gauge There was golf on the steps of Parliament House Saying no maintain the rage In the year of the double dissolution Australia voted in a revolution Then stood back and let the fat cats push it out There was violence in the air As I walked back home that night Everyone you'd meet was getting ready for the fight Saying if they're out for trouble Then trouble's what they'll get We started out a colony Then they think we're a colony Shut up.